would it be helpful for you guys to have this on Sermon Audible? Would that be... Okay, well, if it's helpful, then, then we can do that. I don't, I don't care that much. Well, there we go. I got one yes in the back. That's, that's fine. Um, all right, so let's talk about some hope. We talked about the one possibility that we are... are we got five. I, I swear I turned it on. I shouldn't swear. You shouldn't swear. Don't swear in church. I did. All right. Now I turned it on. Turned it on for real. The other turned it on. Okay. Um, so if we accept that our contemporary anthropology is fundamentally flawed, and that's what I'm talking about. It's, it, it's really an anthropology. What does it mean to be human? That we belong to, our own, belong to ourselves. We are our own and belong to ourselves. If we accept that that's flawed, and I think hopefully after that first talk we're ready to accept that, well, that's awful, so let's not do that. Um, what's the alternative? Okay. If it produces an inhuman society that can never fulfill its promises, it keeps telling us if you just work a little bit harder, if you just follow the right technique, if you just are really honest with yourself and live your authentic life, then you will have this peace that you desire. And what ends up happening is we just um, we feel more and more frantic. That inadequacy drives us to be frantic. I've got to do more. I've got to be more. I've got to produce more. I've got to say more. So what's left? All right, we've got to figure out an alternative. If we are not our own and we don't belong to ourselves, then whose are we? To whom do we belong? Now, that question makes all the difference because uh, really since the early 20th century, the predominant existential question, so the question when people are feeling a lot of anxiety or depression or confusion, they're asking the question, why, why live? That the main question they ask is, who am I? But the better question is, whose am I? Who is this being to whom I belong? How do I belong to them? And what is the implication of this belonging on my life? Those are the, the, the big questions. Now, uh, historically, the church has answered these questions by looking at the claim the Apostle Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 6, 19, and 20. Uh, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Question mark. I should have been a question. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, the context of these verses is a longer admonition against prostitution and other forms of sexual immorality. Uh, it's interesting to me that, that Paul, the Apostle Paul, could have given many other reasons for Christians to flee from sexual immorality. So, for example, he might have argued that prostitution is almost never truly consensual, and therefore it is inherently violent and abusive. He might have argued that visiting prostitutes will lead to illegitimate children and broken marriages and spread diseases. He might have argued that it's simply impure or it's not socially acceptable. He might have said that it's a, a sexual pr promiscuity is actually just a misguided attempt at suppressing personal insecurity. He might have even argued that, in faith, uh, that faithfulness in marriage is important as a practice in self-discipline and integrity and important for a, uh, a society. But none of these reasons make it into Paul's letter, which is, I think, remarkable. Instead, he grounds our sexual morality on our belonging. Whom we belong to makes all the difference in the world. If we belong to ourselves, we are radically free with everything exciting and glorious about that and everything terrifying about that. But if we belong to God, then our experience of belonging in the world has limits that we don't get to choose freely. 
Some of those limits will defy the value system based on efficiency or, let's say, measurable harm. So, for example, uh, uh, let's suppose, for example, just a, a hypothetical that joining yourself to a prostitute, which is as Paul describes it, were a measurably efficient way of meeting your intimacy needs in a, in a, in a marriage that, lasts, that lacks it, a dysfunctional marriage. Let's say it's cheaper than couples counseling, less emotionally and cognitively taxing than working things out or separating. Let's also suppose that modern prostitution in this hypothetical world were free of violence and coercion. It lost all its social stigma. Your spouse didn't care, and it was perfectly safe. Maybe it's even a net positive for your health. By these standards, according to the contemporary anthropology, if we belong to ourselves, then we'd have to admit that in this situation, the individual is free to enjoy prostitution. And some would even go so far as to say that any discomfort or guilt the person feels is a kind of self-hatred. But if Paul's correct, and we are not our own, we do not have the freedom to use another human being's body as a tool to consume intimacy like we consume any other mass-produced product, regardless of how efficient and safe it might be, or appear, I should say. Because very often, in a society that believes that we are each our own, we measure something as being wrong when it has measurable harm or it's inefficient. Can you prove to me that it'll have caused some measurable harm or trauma? If not, then we're all free to enjoy it. But if Paul's right, that's not the case. Because our limits are not determined by efficiency or measurable harm or even by the law, but by the one to whom we all belong, God. Now, we can, we can choose to violate those laws, those limits, but when we do so, we violate the reality of our relationship to our neighbor and God. In 1563, the theological faculty of the Heidelberg University in present-day Germany released a new catechism, and it's aimed at educating lay believers about the basics of the Christian faith. It's set up in a series, as you probably all know, of questions and answers. We love, we Presbyterians love our, our, our catechisms. The first question, the first one, this is so fascinating to me, so fascinating. First question and answer, what is your only comfort in life and death? Um, and the answer is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my Father, not a hair can fall from my head. I was thinking, uh, last week we read this in church, and... Um, that part is not very reassuring to me as a balding man uh, because it's not very hard to, um, there's not that many hairs left to fall out of my head, but there are other uh, analogies that work, but not for me. Indeed, all things must work together for the good of myself, uh, for my salvation. Therefore, his Holy Spirit also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. So this is the first question. <laughs> what is your comfort in life and death? Uh, what fascinates me about that is the, the Heidelberg divines are framing the, the question of our faith um, in, in, in existentialist terms. In other words, the assumption, it, they assume that the reader feels discomfort in life, <laughs> that your fundamental experience of life is that you feel a, a, a discomfort, a fear, a dread, an anxiety, and you also feel that towards death, a fear of death. 
It assumes that life requires some kind of comfort to make it tolerable. It assumes that the thing you need an answer to is how to make life tolerable. But of course, this makes sense if you, if you know the Bible well, because that central theme of shalom, of peace that goes throughout the, the Scripture. So how does it do this? Uh, I want to look at those t- same two ideas we looked at before, identity and belonging. Okay, so we looked at what are the implications if we belong to ourselves? What are the implications on identity and belonging? And we saw that with identity, it drives us to, uh, to this insane anxious, frenetic desire to project our identity so that the world knows who we are and reinvent our identity and reinvent our brand, so on and so forth. And with belonging, it uh, urges us to feel like we don't belong anywhere unless we want to. Okay, what's the alternative? Well, if you are not your own but belong to Christ, then the entire, get this, the entire modern project of identity formation and expression is a sham. It's a con. Which means, by the way, that a major portion of our economy, which is based on this myth that we have to be someone unique, is flawed. Expressive individualism, which is what most of us feel, this, ado- this, this feeling like, I don't know who I am unless I express myself. I express myself. Um, it's the, that logic guides a lot of our industries. If you think about entertainment, if you think about social media, if you think about fashion, even when we buy cars, so much of it is, is wrapped up in expressing who we are, right? All these massive corporations generating billions upon billions of dollars in revenue each year from people who feel an overwhelming burden to feel seen so that they feel real and significant, and they've all been lied to. The truth is that you are always your person. You were created by God with your face, with your name, with your consciousness. You're a unique unique person, but you've always been in relation to other people. You've always existed in relation to others, primarily to God, but also to your family, to your parents, to your neighbor, even to the created world. You were born in relation to those things. There is no version of yourself that can be extracted from these relationships in your history, in your body. We are inextricably inextricably embedded in space and time. And this is important because the alternative anthropology, the belief that we are our own, suggests that we can just pull ourselves out wherever we want and drop ourselves wherever we want to be. That those bonds are not fundamental, they're not essential, that they're just as... Zygmunt Bauman, the man with a great name, says is, uh, until further notice. I'm with you, until further notice. If we belong to Christ, then there is no image for you to maintain because you were made in the image of God. There is no identity for you to discover or to create because your identity was never in question. Now, it felt like it was in question. We live in liquid modernity. We feel like we're uncertain about who I am. But that's because society is constantly telling us that's the case. Society is constantly telling us that our identity is not enough, that we need to project it more, we need to announce it more, we need to be more definite, more sure, more popular. There's no need to express your identity to make it feel more solid or to compete in the ever-growing marketplace of images. That's a description of social media, by the way. This is is how social media um, perfectly uh, um, capitalizes on our... Our, our desire to feel an identity 
it gives us the tools to express ourselves, but it's never enough. Identity is very funny. Uh, I don't think we got to, t uh, no, I was going to talk about this in just a minute. So I'll just hold on. Uh, um, that's what social media does for us. But if we belong to God, then we don't, we don't have to do that. Now, <clears throat> some of this might sound familiar because we actually hear things like what I just described in the secular world too. So for example, people will say, um, you know, uh, you, are, uh, you should love yourself just the way you are. You're good just the way you are. Don't let anyone else define you. Don't let anyone else define your worth. There's this idea that you can give yourself the value and meaning and confidence and, and define your identity on your own. The thing is, is that secular uh, assurances that we're all all right, they always turn out to be based on our own will, our own effort, our own ability to assure ourselves that we're all right because we believe all right, we are all right, which is a tautology. So it would be like saying, uh, cheese is good because cheese is good. My identity is certain because I've decided that my identity is certain. Now, if that makes you feel well, if it makes you less stressed, then good for you. But nothing's actually happening there. It's just something we tell ourselves to cope. To cope. That's it. To cope. And so really the best we can do is reminding each other that we individually have the power to declare that our identity is good. In other words, your identity is a creation of pure subjectivity, your own brain. And it's sustained and, and affirmed by your brain. Here's the problem, though. Identity, by definition, always calls out for external affirmation. Which is one reason, one very good reason, why modern people are always in an identity crisis. The basis of identity is you need someone else to see. You have to have a witness. So if I, if I wear a shirt that says, uh, no one can judge me, <laughs> it's an absurdity because by wearing the shirt, I'm expressing myself so that you judge me in a certain way. On the other hand, we are completely dependent on ourselves to determine, create, and affirm our own identities. Excuse me, on the one hand, we are completely dependent on ourselves. On the other hand, as I said, identity requires some kind of external recognition, recognition by its nature. To have an identity, you must have some being outside of you who can see your face and say your name. The gift of life assumes both a giver and a recipient. But once you begin to rely on other people, here's the problem, once you begin to rely on other people uh, to affirm our identity, it becomes uncertain and shifting it follows the whims of other people. Are they going to like my Instagram post? Are they going to affirm me? How many people do you need to affirm you before you feel like your life matters? I think this is why most of us roll our eyes when somebody says, uh, when we're encouraged to just accept ourselves or to believe in ourselves or to be whoever you want to be. Like most of us roll our eyes at this because we know that they're empty self-esteem slogans. They don't reflect the reality that we actually need some kind of external affirmation. Self-affirmation does not work. We need a witness. Now, if you are your own and you belong to Christ, 
Here's the thing. Your personhood is a real creation objectively sustained by God. And as a creation of God, you have no obligation to create yourself. You couldn't. Your identity is based on God's perfect will, not your subjective, uncertain will. All your efforts to create a perfect, marketable, cool, interesting, exciting image do nothing to add to your personhood. Now, the reason that the opinions of other people don't define you, it's not because you're the only one whose opinion matters, which is what the sort of the secular version of this tells you, um, but because you, your personhood, is not reducible to any human efforts of definition. The only being who can know you fully and understand you without reducing you to a stereotype or to an idol is God. Now, uh, this doesn't mean that you don't have a true self, but that true self is not one that you are burdened with creating. So that modern myth of self-discovery is not true. What does it mean to be, have a true self then? We live as true selves when we stand transparently before God moment by moment. This is what Kierkegaard reminds us. I'm just stealing from Kierkegaard. He says, the self's task, so you want to have a self, you want to have an identity, here's your task, to become itself. And that sounds like a modern idea, but then he continues, which can only be done in relationship to God. What does it mean to be your authentic self, your true self, to recognize every second of the day that you are living before an almighty, all-loving, all-powerful, all-knowing God? It means knowing that we are a miraculous creation, a gift, a pure gift from a loving God. It means that we have limits. If we stand before God moment by moment, that means we have to accept the limits that he sets. We have duties and obligations and commandments which we must obey. It means that we are contingent and, this is very important, dependent upon God, not self-dependent. Anytime we, we imagine ourselves to be autonomous, anytime we strive to be utterly self-sufficient and deny the hand of God in our lives, we're not merely in sin, although we are that. We're also in denial about the reality of the world. In Kierkegaard's view, this denial, when we try to be autonomous, is fundamentally despair. That's real despair is when you think you can live autonomously by yourself. You can pull yourself up. Our contemporary drive to be authentic can find its fulfillment in the active choice to recognize our belonging to and before God. So that desire that we all feel to have an identity, to live that true self, there's a way of expressing that. But the way of finding it is recognize that we live before God always. I love the, this is a passage from Rowan Williams' book, Being Disciples, uh, and it, uh, it captures... I think the Christian understanding of identity much better than I've done so far. He says, you have an identity not because you have invented one, sorry, or that's not in there, the story's not in there, or because you have a little hard core of selfhood that is unchained, unchanged, but because you have a witness of who you are. What you don't see or understand, the bits of yourself that you can't pull together in a convincing story are all held in a single gaze of love. You don't have to work out and finalize who you are and have been. You don't have to settle the absolute truth of your history or your personal story or whatever. In the eyes of the presence that never goes away, God's presence, 
All that you have been and are is still present and real. It's held together in that unifying gaze. And that's a tremendous relief. Let's talk about belonging. If we are not our own but belong to God, then we are not free to belong wherever and to whomever we want. We have limits and obligations. But also we cannot, but we can never be lost. No matter how uncertain and disorienting and alienating the world will become, (laughs) and it will continue to become, we can never be lost because we stand before God. A defining feature of our moment in history is that we have this tremendous freedom to choose where we belong. So society, as I mentioned before, gives us the technology and the laws to join and separate ourselves from family, from place, from community, from religion, and so on. And if we are our own, it's only right that all of our commitments should be until further notice. A Christian anthropology asks much of us because it denies this modern liberal right to define our own communities and commitments. Our most significant commitments are not ones that we get to choose, but those given to us, church, family, and place. No one chooses who they will be born to or their family's history. They are given to us. And no parent should be able to choose the child that is born to them. They are given to us. We are given to each other. These basic natural familial bonds place obligations on us, regardless of your preferences, whether you not to be, want to be related to someone or not. And that's not to say that you should put up with abuse or blindly submit to your family's will for your life. So don't hear that. The particular way that your obligation to your family will play out depend on the circumstances and on the specific shape of your relationships. But here's what doesn't change. The fact that you have obligations, the fact that you belong to them in some basic way, that's not a choice. It's a fact about the world. My fear is that most Americans are much more likely to err on the side of denying our obligation to family than to suffer abuse because of those obligations. That's not universally true, but I think that if we were to poll, I think that's, I think that's the case. The same may be said for the body of Christ. To follow Christ, you acknowledge that you belong to him and that he died for your sins, and that means that you belong to the church. And if you've been in church long enough, you know that commitment to a local congregation is not an easy cross to bear. People disappoint you. It is much easier to cut and run when belonging is unpleasant, painful, or uncomfortable. And it will be all of those things at different times. While belonging to the church, you will be hurt. You will have to learn to love people who look different than you who have different interests and passions and languages and politics. You'll have to give sacrificially to support people who, in a strict meritocracy, don't deserve, quote-unquote, your compassion or your aid or your sympathy. You'll have to submit to the right leadership of elders. You'll have to get over yourself and get out of your head. And maybe hardest of all, you'll have to do all this while rejecting the lie that it is your love and your service that makes you righteous or important or justified. You're righteous because Christ is righteous. You love and serve because he loved and served and serves you. 
Now, like family relationships, your belonging to a particular church doesn't mean that you should put up with abuse or surrender your reason and discernment and will. God's given you reason. He's given you a sense of justice. He's given you a desire for those things. So we are to use discernment. But even in the rare situations, I I hope rare, I believe that if we practice this rightly, it would be much rare, um, when you are compelled to leave a particular local congregation, a decision that that you should only come to with fear and trembling, you still belong to the body of Christ. That basic fact does not change. You still have obligations to care for fellow believers, to preach the word, to commit to a local community of Christians. And to a lesser extent, but it's still real, we belong to where we live. Our contemporary anthropology tends to to make us think of our our, our surroundings as tools for self-development or improvement. If we are our own, then the natural world and the city, the architecture of the city we live in, are only valuable if I can use them to get ahead or if I enjoy them. Right? The stuff out there is there for me. For example, it, it might be advantageous for me to care about the natural world so that the polar ice caps don't melt and send Florida into the ocean, but I don't fundamentally owe creation anything. Do you see how you can do that? You can say, well, oh yeah, I, I care about the environment in this way because it will affect me, but I don't actually owe creation. I don't have any stewardship over it. But the Christian account of the human, but if the Christian account of the human person is correct, then where I am actually matters. By dwelling in a place, I'm forming relationships with it, ones with bonds and obligations. I don't have the freedom to alienate or separate myself from my physical environment any more than it has the freedom to deny me. Now, sure, there, there will be situations where you know, it's, it's reasonable to leave home, but like leaving a church or distancing yourself from family, I think we should approach that desire to move and leave and, and, and restart with extreme trepidation and prayer. God has created us as mobile beings, so there's nothing wrong, inherently wrong or sinful about moving. But if we belong to Christ, our default ought to be that we see ourselves as committed to families, friends, communities, places in the church. This is where we belong, even when it's difficult. I want you to note something here. This Christian anthropology, on, um, on the one hand, it liberates us tremendously. Because in the other anthropology, our identity is always shifting. You're always uncertain. You're always feeling inadequate because you can't act enough to make yourself solid and certain and sure and confident. And in the other anthropology, you never really feel like you belong because there's nothing there. The Christian anthropology changes that completely. But I need you to see that it also puts demands on us. It's also difficult. The difference is the demands that the world makes of us when it says, if you'll just accept that you are your own and belong to yourself and you just need to work harder to make your life meaningful, that burden will kill you. It's unbearable. Whereas the burdens of a Christian anthropology are hard, but they are good and bearable. And that's a, you know, a major difference. Um, one example of this, you know, I've been describing the way that we, that, uh, with this contemporary anthropology, people are frantic, they're desperate, they're moving, or if they feel like, um, they can't do anything, they become what I call resigned, 
um, and, and, and you know, to, that student watching friends is someone who's become resigned. Often, in my experience, that student is actually a very high achieving student. Someone who thinks, you know what, this basic system of the world, me trying to be my own, works. I just need to hustle a little bit harder. And then they hit a wall, and then they say, oh, I guess this doesn't work. And then they say, I'm done. And that, that happens to all of us at one time or another, if you accept this. Even the most high-achieving people will hit a wall and realize this doesn't work. And then they despair. So... The contemporary anthropology drives us to constant action. You can't be still. That's what I need you to see. You can't be still. You can't rest. Why? Because the world is on your back. Your world is on your back. And if you don't make it matter, it's meaningless. And your life is meaningless. So you can't sit down. You can't rest. You cannot be still. And the only time we do decide to be still is in despair. Is when we're eating ice cream and watching friends. Or we're pl- constantly playing video games. Or like our society has given us lots of ways. Nothing wrong with video games, by the way. I'm just saying. There are ways of playing. There's nothing wrong with friends either. Well, maybe. I don't know. Sound feels better. But, um, or ice Thank you. Very good point. In fact, ice cream is wonderful. Uh, but we can turn to these things as coping mechanisms out of hopelessness. Because we say, like, I can't live with myself right now. So I'm going to, I, I don't want to think because I don't know how I can act in this world. It's too much. Okay. Uh, we're talking here about the comfort, right? That's what the catechism says. There's a comfort in life and death. What does that comfort look like? We've already seen what it means for identity and belonging. Um, it also gives us a way of having rest. In fact, it requires that Christian anthropology, if we take it seriously, requires us to learn to be still. If we are our own and belong to God, then we have the freedom to rest. It's a freedom the world does not give us. We do not have to hold up the world or even ourselves, which is good because these responsibilities of belonging to ourselves, they're unbearable. Rightly practiced, a Christian anthropology should create people who are known for their ability to rest. Wouldn't that be great if the world knew Christians, they rest. They really rest. They aren't frantic. I'm preaching to myself here. Yeah. And I don't mean an efficient recharging so we can return to work refreshed and more productive. Uh, that's, that's the way we trick ourselves. Oh, I mentioned technique, this drive to make everything more efficient, and we even do this to good things. So, for example, we will tell ourselves, as if to give ourselves permission to rest, well, I need to rest, because if I don't rest, I will be a bad employee on Monday. And what we're really saying is the thing that matters is that I'm constantly working, and rest is a tool that I use to get to the real thing. It's, it's, it's me plugging in my phone to charge at night. I just have to get through it. You know, it's unfortunate that I've got to do this, but what are you going to do? Um, I remember that thing, I, that, that survey I talked about with the light. People wanted natural light. I was reading that article this morning, and it was interesting because, <laughs> because the author of the article said, um, all right, all these employees, they want natural light. And oh, by the way, so this is Harvard Business Review. So it's written to these business owners, right? persuading them to add natural lighting. By the way, when you give natural lighting, guess what happens to employees? More productive. Isn't that fascinating? We can't, we can't say to ourselves, you should give people sunlight because it's good. 
That's it. You should rest because resting is good. Like we, gotta, it, we have to justify it. Well, actually, it's really efficient. It's actually going to increase your productivity. If you <laughs> watch, watch when companies talk about um, benefits that they give employees, almost always they follow it up with, and this will make you more productive. And the fact that we don't see that as weird shows us how we have all accepted that technique is right, that being efficient is the most important thing, not doing what is good or right or beautiful or true. <clears throat> okay, but as Christians, we can rest. And this is not, again, this is not an arrest, this efficient rest of recharging so you can be more productive. Because if you do that, by the way, like it becomes another chore and you can start looking up how to rest efficiently. For real, like... <laughs> It's just like the pill. It's just like sleeping, right? The, they will find lots of ways that, you know, I've got to rest more efficiently. It's another work for you to do. And not the conspicuous fun, quote-unquote, of travel or partying that gains its significance through social media posts. There's, you know, we just finished summer, so maybe this is a little too close to home. But, you know, sometimes our, our vacations, quote-unquote, they become just like work in a different key right? Like, it's, it's just another form of labor, uh, and you are frantically trying to see all the right things, to have the right experiences, and especially for, I think, younger people to document those things and post them uh, for the social capital it provides. And that's not restful. <sighs> and it's also not the, the, the kind of frantic relaxation that requires us to re- consume the right content. Right? Have you seen this movie? Have you watched this show? Do you see this latest episode? Because those things leave us with a fear of missing out. Oh, I haven't seen this. Gosh, I need to watch this show. And all of a sudden, watching TV becomes a chore. And it's not vegging with this hopeless sense of exhaustion and incapacity. Again, feeling of inadequacy and an inability to move. Uh, to move. That's not biblical rest. So biblical rest is possible because, here's the thing, we do not need to act to save the world or to justify ourselves. That's the difference maker. Because a loving God created and preserves the world and you, you, specifically you, because he has promised good to all who love him, you don't have to be busy. You don't have to feel guilty for not being productive all the time or for not using your your free time in the most uh, efficient way. Rest without fear or anxiety, fear of falling behind or missing out is not only possible for Christians because we are not our own, uh, it's required of us. Culturally, unfortunately, we tend to valorize those who don't stop the hustle, right? Athletes who are gym rats, uh, Silicon Valley startup employees who sleep under their desks so they can work longer hours, 18-hour days, let's say. 4.5 GPA high school students who are involved in multiple extracurricular activities so they can get into the right school and so on. We praise these, this overwork. And such a monomaniacal drive, it does not reflect the reality that God is sovereign. God provides And he is our righteousness. And that's where our righteousness is found, in his son, not in ourselves or our work. Um, To me, I think that the most moving two verses in all of Scripture are uh, Luke 10, 41 and 42, where Martha comes to complain about her sister Mary, who isn't helping to serve a meal to Jesus. this This episode feels very familiar to me as a parent because I feel like my kids do this kind of tattling all the time. They'll come to me like, you know... 
Quentin isn't doing his di- the dishes. He was supposed to help clean his room, and he's not helping. I'm doing all of it, right? So I'm very sympathetic to Jesus in this situation. I'm like, yeah, yeah. Um, he says, so this is it. Uh, but, but the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Uh, I have to say, my impulse is to side with Martha, right? When my kids do this, I, I'm, I'm like, you know what? You do need to help clean the room. I also share Martha's habit of being anxious and troubled about many things. Christ's words cut her to the core. I love the fact that he repeats the name. That's so sweet to me. Uh, so he, I don't know if this is how it happened, but this is what I imagine. I imagine that she, when she walks in the room... So the first time he says Martha, I imagine, so her mind is frantically thinking about, okay, what do I need to, be, to do to be a good host? And she's, she's angry at her sister who's just sitting there and doing nothing. And she's thinking, I've got to be the right hostess. I've got to do the right things. And she, he says her name and, he, and she's probably like, she hears it, but she doesn't hear it. In her spirit, she's still frantic. Her mind is still racing around with all the things that need to be done. So she's physically present with Christ, as we can be on Sunday, but spiritually, all she wants from him is to order Mary to get her act together and work. <laughs> can, can you tell her to be frantic too? <laughs> uh, but I think with that second mention of her name, when he says, Martha, Martha, I bet she got chills. Where she, where she realizes that she's seen and her defenses fall down. Christ spoke to the Martha behind the Martha who believed that she was personally responsible for everything, which, in our modern anthropology, is what we are taught to believe. And that's the expectation society places on us. The essence of his response is that one thing is ultimately necessary, delighting in Christ. Uh, My struggle with that is that necessary is a pretty heavy word. It carries a lot of urgency and action. I'm sure that Martha at that moment was convinced that serving was precisely the right necessary thing to do. Just as we have long lists of quote-unquote necessary things that must get done every day before we feel at peace. Yes, Christ, I understand necessary. Mary doesn't seem to understand that feeding people is necessary. Uh, I, wonder, I wonder if Lazarus stopped her in the kitchen and said, hey, um, why don't you join Mary at the feet of Jesus? Why don't you go hang out? And she's like, look, uh, I just need to finish this, and then I can sit there, okay? But this needs to get done. This is necessary. The problem is there's always just one more thing we just need to do. That's a, I, I, I hear this in my head all the time. I just need to, I just need to get to this bill. <laughs> I just need to work out more. I just need to eat better. I just need to spend more time with my kids. I just need to. It goes on and on and on. But Jesus subverts Martha's conception of what is necessary. The one thing, listen to this, doesn't require Martha to act. Isn't that interesting? Or at least not how we usually think of acting. Here, it's action in stillness. All that is necessary is to sit at the feet of Christ and delight in him. And my fear is that we are a people of Martha's. We're chronically unable to cease our work to delight in Christ. We feel safer 
We feel safer when we have exhausted ourselves, laboring for our own justification. And the sight of Marys, those people who can rest, make us very bitter. <laughs> Sometimes I'll walk around and be like, what's wrong with these people? Why, why don't they know they should be worried about something right now? They should be frantically running around and doing things. But it doesn't have to be this way. By God's grace, we can continue to understand that we are not our own, and thereby we can learn to rest. Um, I, wanna, I want us to think about a, a kind of posture towards the world, this world that, as I've described it, is disordered. It's made for humans that are not like us, not how God designed us. One of the challenges of this fact is that I don't know of a realistic way that you or I can resolve this. I don't know how, that w- how we can change society and undo all this damage. So to give us a way forward, I want to turn to my favorite poet, T.S. Eliot. In one of his poems, Courses from the Rock, he has these, these three lines. And this is a poem about the problem of the city. So he's describing London in particular, and he's saying, look how we frantically run around. Like all, basically all the things I talked about, everyone else has already talked about. T.S. Eliot is one of them. And he said, our lives are inhuman. What are we supposed to do? And this is what he says. What have we to do but stand with empty hands and palms turned upward in an age which advances progressively backwards? Isn't that great? And in this poem, he talks about all of it, dehumanization, technique, efficiency, alienation, the decay of communities, the emptiness of consumerism and secularization, the the, the falls of the church, all these things. But that's his response. Uh, I love that idea of a society that, I'd hate that idea, but it's very useful to think of a society that advances progressively backwards, because that does feel like it. Like our society is constantly moving, constantly shifting, and in some people's ideas, it's progressing, but it's actually progressing backwards in a number of ways. Now, that's not to say that real progress has not been made. In our own country, there are many areas um, where there has been real meaningful progress, so I'm not, I'm not diminishing that. But when we think back to what we talked about in that first talk, I think we have to accept that we are moving away from what it means to be human, and that is progressing backwards. This progress feels unstoppable. Tech, uh, technology is going to keep advancing. Changes are going to keep getting made. And it's not clear what we can do about it. These lines from Eliot suggest that we really only have one response to it, the inhuman conditions of our world, and that's to stretch out our hands in supplication to God. In other words, to be Mary and not to be Martha. Now, let me note here, true supplication is not pa- passivity. You're not, it's not inaction or resignation or hopelessness. It's an act of dependence upon God, which always involves obedience to his will. So when we reach out in supplication before God, we don't get to ignore injustice or the dehumanizing structures of our society. But here's the difference. It also doesn't mean that our actions are done, uh, sorry, excuse me, it does mean that our actions are done in reliance upon God. Supplication is a form of acting in stillness before God. That's what Mary was doing. From the world's perspective, this is supreme foolishness because the world demands action. What's the action plan? How are we going to change things? This is one of the uh, 
a lot of what I'm reading right now is 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 from this book that I wrote. Um, you are not your own. Um, and one of the challenges of writing this book was the second half, where I've got to you know give solutions and or answers or something responses, and knowing that most readers just want steps. <laughs> <laughs> the five steps to saving America and our communities. And I'm like, there are none, Jesus. <laughs> that's it. That's just one step, Jesus. Uh, but for real, that's, it's those hands outstretched in supplication. Okay. To the world, that's foolishness because we need those plans. Why? Because we're driven by efficiency. We're constantly acting. We are convinced that we can carry the world on our shoulders. But faithfully doing what is good Faithfully doing the good that God puts before you day by day and while you wait dependent upon God for redemption. Who's going to redeem the world? Not you, God. Doing that, doing what is good wherever you are while waiting for God to redeem the world, that is the most meaningful action you can ever take. But it's an action in stillness. It's Mary. It's the only way we can righteously respond to the crisis of our time. And the alternative, I think, is really dangerous. For too many evangelicals, uh, they've begun their work advocating for justice and righteousness in their communities or nations only to abandon it for pragmatism when they don't see immediate results. Because here's the thing. If you think that you are going to change the world when it doesn't happen right away, you start thinking, maybe I need to cut some corners. Maybe it's okay if I lie to people in order to bring out the greater good. I've seen this happen a lot. Or you start thinking, you know, the real problem with our world is those people don't agree with me. They're the ones holding me back. If they came on my side fully, then the world would change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Isaiah 30 is really interesting on this. Um, I think like ancient Israelites, uh, we may find ourselves supporting a candidate or a policy or a party, w w take your pick, who promises to protect us or support us or you know, give us the future that we want if we will only, quote, trust in oppression and perverseness. That's Isaiah 30. You know what? You just got to trust in some perverseness, but you're going to be okay. I'll take care of you. Even if an oppressive leader like a pharaoh defends us for a time, it's not true peace. True salvation or cultural renewal comes not through your, uh, our actions, but through our rest in God and quietness before him. How do I know that? Because that's what Isaiah thirty fifteen says. In returning and rest, you shall be saved. In quietness and trust will be your strength. Think how countercultural that is. <laughs> Uh, I was thinking, you know, you would not probably see a Christian political organization uh, advocating for rest and quietness, you know. <laughs> this is what we need, quietness. How do we save our communities? Quietness. It's uninspiring, and it makes for bad fundraising, so it's not efficient. <laughs> but, but this is what we're called to. Christians who rest in God are not, I need you to see, they're not inert, they're not they're not uh, that hopelessness. They don't have that. They still obey the command to do justice, but they act in stillness, knowing that it is God who sustains, God who redeems. You are not redeeming the city. God redeems the city in his time, hopefully through you. So our obligation is faithfulness, not pro productivity or measurable results. Um. 
Paul reminds the church in Corinth, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So our task is to try. There's, another, there's a line from Eliot that I love from the four quartets that I love the most. He says, for us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. And I think that's a good posture to have. In our cities, God has given us good things to do. That's our job. Our job is to try to do those thing, things. The rest is not our business. Um, and that requires a lot of courage. It's not, here's the thing, it's not difficult to be courageous when you believe that your actions will turn the tide and bring about change. When you think that you're going to save your community or your church or your nation or whatever, you single-handedly, it's not hard to be courageous and do, stand up against the crowds, whatever. It's another thing altogether to act courageously without the expectation that you, that you will change the world. You act courage, courageously because God has asked you to do that thing. Often we act because we don't trust that we will be preserved otherwise, but our calling is to be still and know that God is God and not you. In holy stillness, we acknowledge God's presence and his provision. In holy action, we acknowledge our moral obligation to God and our neighbor, but because it is action and stillness, we don't entertain the lie that our actions can ever produce self-sufficiency. Stillness is resting in God's grace. Action is an extension of that grace and nothing more. Because we are not our own, we can be still. Because we belong to God, we can act in humility. Now, when you stand transparently before God, it is impossible not to desire to, to, in love to obey him. But it's also impossible to imagine when you're standing before God, it's impossible to imagine that the world or even your own righteousness rests on your shoulders. When you are standing moment by moment before Christ, you don't get to delude yourself into thinking that you are going to save the world or even your own life. So we can rest in God's sovereignty. We can honestly observe how society negatively affects us without making excuses for our sin or denying personal responsibility. When we rest in God's sovereignty, we can act to do good without deluding ourselves into thinking that we will save the world. When we rest in God's sovereignty, we can have grace for ourselves and our neighbors as we cope with an inhuman society that will only be saved by God. So, um, let's wrap this up. <clears throat> to conclude, I always hate conclusions that begin with to conclude. Never mind, scratch that. What brings us comfort in life and death is our belonging to a loving, personal God, one who dwells with us, one with whom we have union, one who is able to desire and bring about our good without, without neglecting his own will. Here's the thing. If you belong to anyone else or to anything else, our passions, to a political movement, to an ideal, to a man, to a woman, whatever, inevitably at some point they will abuse their relation to you by sacrificing your good for their own because they are fallen. God is the only being who can desire your good and his goodwill without conflict. Everyone else at some point is going to say, I love you, but I really don't want to do the dishes tonight. <laughs> I've been doing the dishes lately, so that's... It's hard when you have to come up with an idea, an example right on the spot, so you just, whatever, the dishes... Only in Christ can we find a belonging without violence or 
abuse, a belonging that grounds and fulfills our personhood rather than effacing it. On the other hand, it's clear that belonging to Christ, as we've discussed, is difficult. It gives us existential comfort, which is what the uh, Heidelberg divines are, 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 are promising, but it also invi- involves considerable obligations, as we've seen. The faithful Christian life looks like thousands of little deaths to self every day, thousands of denials of our desires. Some of the desires that God will demand that you say no to will feel closer and truer than your own skin. In that respect, some people, I'm thinking of Nietzsche here, have wrongly described Christianity as a kind of religion of resignation. In other words, Christianity gives you hope because it lowers your expectations a lot, right? You just don't desire anything and you won't be sad. But that's deeply mistaken, no. If, If it were the case that the only comfort offered in belonging to Christ was hopelessness, it would be a false comfort. Christ would be no good God. Now, the denial of self at the heart of Christianity is not a denial of our humanity or of beauty or of goodness or of joy. It's an affirmation of that humanity. Because in our union with Christ, we take on his righteousness, which he works in us. We're still fallen humans, so we're going to desire the wrong things or desire them in the wrong way or to the wrong wrong extent. But Christ is sanctifying us day by day, and obedience to him is no real burden. Each one of us desires to know that we are okay. This gets back to that affirmation point I was discussing earlier. As children, we look to our parents and teachers and we want to hear them say, good job, when we try something difficult, or you're okay when we're hurt or sick. Most of the time, we uh, we want people to look in our face and say this. There's something about that experience of somebody looking you in the eyes and saying, good job, or you're okay. Age doesn't diminish that, though. It, it really doesn't. If anything, I think the troubles of the world, the memories of our own sin and failure, the seriousness of our obligations, the burdens of life, the bitterness of competition, raise that desire for affirmation even more. When you were a child, a loving word from your mother spoken in the middle of the night could soothe you back to sleep, perfectly assured of the rightness of the world and your safety. But as adults... Our need for comfort seems to be insatiable. It drives us, it drives some to destructive addictions and others to the frantic self-improvement that we talked about earlier. We all live before the gaze of someone or something. Our heart's desire is to be affirmed by that gaze so that our lives are justified, so that our place in the world is certain, and that our trajectory of life is clear. As Kierkegaard argues, We can only be our true selves when we live transparently before God. We must live aware of our belonging to God. At the center of living before God is living the acceptance, listen to the acceptance that life is fundamentally good and worth experiencing even when it's painful. Well, what does it mean to live transparently before God? At the core, it means accepting that life is good, the life he has given you and he preserves. It's good even when it's painful. Life is a gift that we steward rightly when we understand it as a gift from God. This means that when we get out of bed every day, which is a choice to live in this world, it's a testament to other people 
that we belong to God. Choosing to live in an inhuman world bears witness to other people of the essential goodness of life, which can only be essentially good if it's grounded in God. No matter our circumstances, our life is good because we live it before God who intentionally created us and sustains us. We respond to his gaze of love by striving to live faithfully to his norms, his laws. By the way, this would be unbearable. To stand transparently before God will fill us with fear. Except that his gaze of love is dependent upon the sacrifice of his son, not upon our faithfulness. We live, when we live before God in grace rather than in shame or despair, we communicate to our children and our neighbors something of the character of God. Now, modern life is weary, and we are all very heavy laden. The pressures that I described, especially in the first talk, the pressures to accept a false anthropology. Here's the thing. When we accept that that's a lie, the pressures aren't going to go away. Your employer is still not going to give you a window. <laughs> the world is still going to put inhuman expectations on you. You're still going to be pressured to express your identity in order to feel alive. All those things are still going to be there. Our hope and prayer is that Christ redeems this world. But I don't have a plan for undoing all those pressures, for overthrowing a, a, a disordered society and making a new habitat. If I did have such a plan, you should probably worry about me as a cult leader. I don't have that plan. What we can do is we can recognize the lie for what it is, and we can say, you know what? I don't belong to myself. I belong to God. And that means these things are true. I have an identity. I do belong. All these things are true. You're still going to feel those pressures in life, and so we need to have grace for each other and ourselves because we're going to continue to live in an inhuman environment for an indefinite amount of time. But we, we have our faith in Christ and Christ's redemption, Christ's promise to redeem us, not our ability to save the world. Because we live in a habitat, we still live in a habitat made by humans, but not for humans, we will sin. We will forget and deny that we are forgiven and slip back into shouldering the responsibilities of self-belonging again and again and again. In those times, our task is to remind ourselves and our neighbors of what we know to be objectively true, even if you don't feel it, that we are not our own but belong to Christ. We've got to be communities that remind each other of this. Final thought. For myself, I, I think the greatest comfort in belonging to Christ is that the things that are most central to my experience of life find their home and their ground. Love, beauty, justice, joy, guilt, pleasure, longing, sorrow, delight. It's these things... Not in the abstract, but in the particular, with particular people and moments that give life most of its beauty and grandeur to me. Now, I, I know I can find other ways of explaining away beauty. I can find, uh, you know, evolutionary ways of explaining what love is. But none of those accounts can avoid impoverishing the very things I find most true about life. 
In Christ, I can take comfort that the truest things in life are the realest things. Thank you.